0: place has a lot of energy. Palm trees go up forever. And that's the house. Should we walk up to it? And So this is a house that um, my dad was 19 years old at the time. He'd been living in LA for a year in Santa Monica. My grandparents, Julio and Jenny were living here and this is a house where my grandfather shot himself. Not everybody wants to know when tragedy takes place in a house and ripples across generations from one generation to the next. So I wish I had a medium with me. This whole journey started when I received my grandfather's death certificate. I told his story in the last episode, Recovering Julio, but I was left with a question. Why did my dad hide so many details about his father? Things that would have meant so much to me if I had known them. In my search, I discovered a box of documents stored in an archive and I learned that my dad had a nickname I'd never heard before. His family called him Ned. So I'm calling this episode Recovering Ned. After Julio's suicide, police officers arrived at the house in Santa Monica. It was reported in the L.A. Times...
1: The Los Angeles Times, Los Angeles, California, Thursday, August 28, 1941. The body was found by his widow, Mrs. Jenny Mettle. Niseto Metal, 19, a son, told officers his father was of German descent. He was a citizen of Switzerland.
0: Wait a second. Of German descent? My grandfather was born in what's now Ukraine, near the Polish border. The whole family was Jewish. They fled the Nazis in 1938. It's as if my dad wanted to hide who they were. But that makes sense. Anti-Semitism was alive and well in the U.S. as well as Europe, so he probably didn't feel safe revealing their Jewish identity. But his secrets continued, even with his own family. After Julio's death, my grandmother Jenny moves back to New York. My dad spends three months in the Eagle Squadron of the British Royal Air Force and completes 150 hours of flight training. Then, in December of 1941, the U.S. enters the war.
2: And we are going to win the peace that follows.
0: My dad becomes an American citizen and changes his name from Niseto to Nicholas. He goes from Ned to Nick, and he's drafted into the U.S. Army.
1: American bombers pounding enemy bases in Germany, Italy, occupied
0: Europe. On battlefields all over the world, American soldiers fighting to determine this nation's destiny. He's summoned to Washington, D.C., where he joins the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, the precursor of the CIA, which is to say he really was a professional secret keeper. He's multilingual and well-traveled, having lived in Barcelona, Vienna, gone to boarding school in England, traveled in Switzerland, France, and Germany.
1: He was kind of like a high-class refugee.
0: That's my dad's friend, Mark Head. I called him up to get some answers and just to get another perspective.
1: I had sense a guy who knew that life is short and he'd seen things in his life and he wanted to live in the present.
0: I knew so little about where he'd been. And what he'd seen.
1: I think he was aware of what, what he came from. He was aware of what he lost in transit. Um, I never knew exactly the years he served in the OSS. He didn't talk about, he'd always talk about military service or what he was doing in a very kind of offhanded way, as if he were still under some oath to secrecy.
0: That's the way he was. He didn't need an oath to be a secret keeper. I tried to find out more about his time in the OSS from one of his oldest friends, Reinhardt Dareth. He didn't have much to offer.
1: I mean, I can, I can visualize him to be very, very good in that. I mean, he was an imposing person and uh, uh, probably to some people, somewhat terrifying.
0: I can see that. He was tall, barrel-chested. He had the demeanor of a general. I filed a Freedom of Information Act request to find out more about his time in the OSS. And I obtained his files. Hundreds of pages. He's stationed in France, Belgium, and Germany. He recruits undercover agents, plans intelligence missions. The missions have names like Sunspot, Comet, Twilight. But it wasn't all James Bond. He writes reports on the Wehrmacht on Hitler's youth training school, arrest statistics of the Gestapo. Being a spy seemed like such a debonair profession when I was young. I really had no sense of how dark this experience must have been for him.
1: This
2: is a solemn but a glorious
1: hour. General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of freedom fly all over Europe.
0: World War II ended on September 2, 1945. Eighteen days later, Truman signed an executive order dissolving the OSS. My dad doesn't return to civilian life, though. He stays in military intelligence stationed in Bremen, Germany. He's involved in denazification efforts, finding and prosecuting Nazis. He must have felt a true sense of purpose at the same time there he is a Jew in Germany witness to the fallout of the end of the war more than half of the old city of Bremen has been destroyed by bombing he had a front row seat to devastation I've no way of knowing what he saw or what it must have been like but I remember he had chronic insomnia and night terrors. He finally returns to the U.S. in 1949 and attends a school of foreign service at Georgetown. He studies Sanskrit at UPenn. It seems to me he was considering a career in intelligence. What I do know is he doesn't stay long in the U.S., he moves to Canada. That's where I was born. I don't really know why he left the U.S., but it was in the 1950s, and he had friends who were communists.
1: Anyone that had anything to do with the communists, the leftists, as your dad knows, was, uh, was, was branded during the McCarthy period.
0: That's his friend Mark Had again.
1: And uh, that probably was what, m- maybe that's what, Brought your dad to Canada. You know more You know more about why he went to Canada than I do. I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure.
0: I really don't. He never talked about this. The only thing I know is my cousin's hazy recollection that my dad fled to Canada because he and a filmmaker friend were about to be arrested in the McCarthy witch hunt. Truth? Fiction? A bit of both? Mark and my dad met through a mutual friend. Erica Glazer Wallach, who served with my dad in the OSS.
1: I think she gave me his name, and I think somehow I called him up, mentioned Erica, and it—you know—it was like uh, I'd known the guy for uh, you know a hundred years, and uh, meeting Nick was like you know love at first sight. It was like meeting my older brother.
0: Cosmic recognition.
1: I knew that he was a guy you could talk to about various things, open up with music, literature, whatever, history. And he was there like an alert, you know, he was terribly alert. He's like an alert German shepherd looking at you, picking up everything you said, you know. Where where you want to throw the bone? I'll go get it, you know, and let's go play together.
0: I love that image of him as a German shepherd. It was the only kind of dog my dad would let us have because he thought it was the most intelligent breed. My dad wasn't always hyper alert, though. The year Mark met my dad, he'd been hit by a car. He had been crossing a busy street after what was likely a well-lubricated lunch with friends.
1: I can see it happening Nick because he was a kind of distracted kind of guy, probably thinking about a dozen things. And I don't know how it happened. Was he walking across the street and somebody just hit him?
0: He never looked before he crossed.
1: He's the kind of guy. He's kind of like a Terminator. He's just—he's gonna—he'd probably crawl across the road uh, and not think twice about it.
0: I have a vivid memory of another crossing. It's me, my brother, my aunt, and my dad driving his Pontiac Firebird convertible. I think I'm about nine years old. There's a railroad track ahead and the whistle of a train signaling its approach. There's no railroad crossing gate. I can see the train coming up on the right. He puts his foot all the way down on the gas pedal. He's going to beat the train. Faster, faster! Until the very last millisecond, he comes to a screeching halt. A part of me thinks he wanted to take us all with him, but at the last minute he couldn't do it. He was always pushing it as far and as fast as he could, even after the time that Mark mentioned when he was hit by a car. He lost most of the mobility in his left arm, but he still drove sports cars. He'd rest his left arm on the steering wheel while he shifted gears with his right hand. Vancouver in 1966, my dad hired Canada's preeminent modernist architect Arthur Erickson to design a house for perfect sound. He wanted to recreate the acoustic environment of a concert hall. His speakers alone were almost nine feet wide. The house had concrete walls and floors, glass windows that were probably 40 feet tall. The dining room had a wraparound balcony It was not a house designed for children. My maternal grandfather installed chicken wire mesh between the floor and the railing to prevent my brother and me from falling through and landing onto the concrete floor.
2: Whenever I would come around, there would always be classical music playing.
0: That's Catherine Schleibley, a friend I grew up with in Vancouver.
2: And invariably, he was always sitting on that fantastic sofa, leather sofa, reading, actually.
0: The sofa was made by the Brazilian designer, Percival Leifer. It had olive green leather cushions that you could barely lift yourself out of. I knew that there was
2: something going on because because your dad didn't work. Like, he didn't go to the office in the same way that everybody else's parents did. You know, the dads would be gone Monday to Friday. Your dad was around all the time.
1: And Nick was kind of like the kid, the older, I don't know, the older kid or the kid that came back from college without a job yet or something trying to figure out what to do.
0: Except he didn't complete a degree despite attending five universities. And he tried lots of different things, like operating a department store in Quebec and a fertilizer company in Vancouver. He was also a photographer and a translator.
1: Nick may have been a kind of guy, and I appreciate this, I appreciate this, who had a hard time finishing things. He may have been distracted But um, he may have had a certain amount of um, self-sabotage in him.
0: Yet he never stopped searching for relief, transformation, escape from his past. He was open to pretty much anything. Encounter groups at the Esalen Institute and Big Sur. Completely
1: unknown to each other, sit around in a circle... And trade true. Uh, Gestalt
0: I, therapy. I know Aldous Huxley. I break, I Carl Sagan. The cosmos. This was the '60s and '70s. He wasn't the only one searching. Did you notice an energy when you walked into our house?
2: You know what? I always felt a bit uncomfortable at your house to begin. To be honest, I always felt like I was disturbing your father when we would walk in. I sort of felt, okay, we have to almost be invisible when we're here. It wasn't a sense of being unwelcome, you know, because I think, you know, there was a genuine uh, sort of warmness that your dad would sort of project when, when I would come in. But at the same time, it was like, it's, it's his house. It's his domain, you know. It wasn't It wasn't even your house. It was. It was his house,
0: right? I knew not to touch anything especially his stereo. I remember the feeling of my stomach dropping if he discovered that something was missing or out of place. Sometimes, if he couldn't find something, he was convinced it had been stolen.
2: You know, I don't have the the same kind of memories from other people's families. It didn't have the same impact or impression on me that, that that your father and your going into your house had on me. It was a very distinct experience.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Do you ever remember my dad always walked around nude?
2: I remember you being worried that he'd be walking around nude when I would be over. Yeah, you would kind of always be a bit like, oh God, I hope he's not walking around nude. (laughs) Never saw it, didn't have the, you know, didn't have that happen. (laughs) Oh God. But then again, you know,
0: it was his house. He was comfortable. It was his domain. It seems kind of funny to me now, but it was awkward. And I was always on guard for what kind of mood I'd find him in.
1: When I think about Nick, he had troubled eyes. He had eyes that kind of darted about um, as if he were hiding something or some kind of pain.
0: So here's where I get into some of the darker stuff. I don't think I learned until I was maybe 13 or 14 that my dad was manic depressive, which is what they called it then. Now I'd say he suffered from bipolar disorder. I knew he took a cocktail of pills, including lithium. In his depressions, he would sit on the bed wearing the same dark blue nylon tracksuit, holding his face in his hands, in front of the TV, which was turned off. But more often, I remember him lying on the couch listening to classical music, for hours, and as loud as his state-of-the-art speakers could go.
2: He created a very safe environment, that he was aesthetically made him calm and peaceful. He had the music to keep him peaceful. It was the one area where he felt most comfortable and calm.
0: I remember when I was a kid in high school and I'd get home from school and it was just my dad and I in the house. I'd hear the sound of pill bottles rattling around in the bathroom. I knew he was thinking about taking too many of them. I remember thinking about leaving the house then and getting back home much later and he would be gone. I fantasized that I'd slip seamlessly into my next life where I'd be a new person in a new family, living a new life It was hard to be his daughter when I was growing up. Yet when I think about my dad now and his father, I think it can't have been easy being Julio's son. Julio had been wildly prosperous. He'd seen opportunities in a thousand places. He was larger than life. But it also seemed to me he was erratic, manic even, racing from one idea to the next. During my dad's periods of mania, he would stay up all night or come home at four in the morning. I'd hear him typing on his IBM Selectric in the middle of the night. Sometimes when he was talking, he'd get so animated that beads of sweat would roll off his forehead and drip off his nose.
1: The guy was raring for conversation. And... I was interested in history, great in history, particularly in German history, middle, middle European history, and, and French and others, and England. And Nick would tell me these stories.
0: I remember those moments as once where I could let out my breath, even relax for a bit. He was engaged. He was social. He was a part of the world. I adored him then. But he was so fragile. I see now that if he'd let the past in or explained it to me, it would have shattered him. I somehow knew instinctively not to ask about his past. So I spent years searching, learning about it on my own. After World War II, my family was among the survivors of Nazi persecution who filed restitution claims for property. Because of anti-Jewish laws passed by the Nazis, Julio was forced to sell his properties. He sold them to a wealthy businessman named Count Lazarus Henkel von Donner's at far below their market value. It gets a little complicated here. There were lawsuits and countersuits. But in the end, most of the properties in Western Germany were returned to my family in 1956. And after the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, the property claims in eastern Germany were settled. Those properties were eventually sold and the Metal and von Donnersmark families split the proceeds. This time, there were no long, drawn-out court cases. It was easily negotiated. And my dad and the son of Count Lazarus became friends. My parents stayed with them at their castle in Austria. And I heard that my dad visited him in the hospital when he was ill. Decades after his wartime experiences, my dad could reconcile himself to a version of the past that gave him comfort. Though I wonder how much of himself he had to hide to do that. Here's Mark again.
1: Nick was the last person, I think if you said, you know, are you Jewish? I mean, think I don't think he would have... I guess he said, yeah, kind of. I mean, I don't think Nick really, really, you know, that even never came up itself. We never talked about that.
0: Even though he was able to move on in some ways, he probably felt intense survivor's guilt. And I think the traumatic loss of his father, Julio, trailed him his entire life. I keep thinking about the description my dad gave to the police officer on the day after Julio's death in Santa Monica, that Julio was of German descent, a citizen of Switzerland. It must have been terrifying to acknowledge that he was Jewish. I'm back at the house in Santa Monica, oh, wow. California, the house where Julio's life came to an end when my dad was just 19. At this point, I'd been playing detective for years. I figured it was time to see the house in Santa Monica, so I wrote to the homeowner to ask if I could visit.
1: And you're okay with us recording? Yeah, Oh, that's fine. Absolutely.
0: And then he asked if we wanted to look at something I wasn't expecting.
1: Okay, yeah, there's this one safe. I don't know if you guys know. This safe looks like it's been here since the house was built. No one has the combination
0: to this. It's black. About yeah, three feet so I don't know by if three something feet. From
1: your dad from your grandfather's time back in here. It
0: looks like it belongs in a museum.
1: There's got I feel like there's gotta be something in there, isn't there? Yeah.
0: Holy shit <laughs> Holy Holy cow! So my grandfather was a numismatist What's that Which is a collector of coins, rare coins, oh, wow. and he uh-huh. started numismatic fine arts with Edward Gans okay. and they started in New York and Edward Gans eventually moved to California yeah. and there's an order. I'm giving him way more details than he wants to hear, but I can't stop myself. So it would make perfect sense that he erected the
1: safe. Yeah, that's interesting. I was always and wondering what story And you can't the open the
2: led. safe. No, I can't open the safe. Yeah. <gasps> <laughs> yeah, you know, I,
1: I don't know. There's, um, I, I thought just to, to be able to use it that I'd have like a locksmith try to come and find the combination for it. But he said that th- this is not, they don't, like this is one of the really hard ones to open or something. So he said there's no way to get in other than to drill a hole through it. And I like the safe, so I didn't want to have them drill it through.
0: Wow. Wow. (laughs) I keep thinking I get to the end. But I never get to the end of this story, and then I see this safe. We can't open the safe, and what is in this safe? I'll probably never find out if there's anything that belonged to my family inside that safe. Friends have asked me why I didn't push to hire a safe cracker. And I guess it's because I need to let it go. I've spent years looking at the past, chasing Julio and Ned across time zones, into archives, I've even stepped foot into the very house where Julio took his life. Despite the tragedies that circled through my family, I think I'm lucky. Julio took his life in middle age, and my dad often toyed with the idea of ending his. But here I am in my middle age. I had been so weighted down, afraid their legacy would echo into my future. Now that I have a more complete picture, I don't feel compelled to keep searching. Miraculously, my dad kept going. He died suddenly of a heart attack while jogging at the age of 86. I was also lucky that when I was older, my dad and I developed a close relationship, though he still kept so much locked away.
1: Talk to me, otherwise it's very hard to have a good expression. Just keep on talking,
0: for No, sake. I'm just filming everything. His moods were less erratic in his later years, but I always worried about him. That only stopped on the day he died. How do we find out about the past? Is it by the stories we were told? Or is it by the ones that were kept hidden that sparked this obsessive search to piece it together? I was given the chance to follow a paper trail that seemed to stretch for miles. The story wasn't what I thought it was. It's darker, more complicated. But it was worth uncovering. My dad survived the story in the only way he could. I'm just beginning to understand mine. This two-part podcast was produced by me, Camilla Metal Brinkman, and edited by Jennifer Gorin. It was co-produced by Jessica Garrett. Original score, sound design, and mix by Matt Russell. Steve McGarry, Will Watt, Rebecca Braunart Plunkett, Sylvia Meisterl, Karsten Boers, Chris Brooks, Paul Hodgson, Tagiar Grau, and Sherban Dinu contributed voiceovers. Additional location sound recordings by Kevin Kaners, Stel Klein, and Ryan Lentini. Music licensing by Lionfish. Thanks to everyone who shared stories about my dad. And a big thanks to Beata Schreiber of Facts and Files in Berlin for her generosity and tireless research. A full list of credits and more is on the web at lossandfoundproductions.com.